This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators and the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, it's kind of funny. I'm it's summer right now, and you know we have this. Uh, my school, we give we get hours for curriculum development that we get paid for to do some curriculum work, and it made me think a lot about how do we know what to teach, like. What guides us in our making curriculum? Have you ever thought about that as a, I mean, when you're in the classroom or as a pre-service teacher, like how do you tell people what they should teach? Oh, it's a, it's really challenging too, because in, I teach social studies methods classes, right? So we talk with teacher candidates about what they're going to teach in their class. And we often want those classes to focus on really important and meaningful things, But the challenge is if you go and cover something, contemporary events, right, and then even try to trace them back and learn the history around them and what you can do about it, which is all social studies stuff, uh, sometimes the students go, that's great, but that's not in the standards I have to teach, the TEKS here in Texas. So I've heard of the term TEKS. I think it has something to do with Texas education in knowledge standards or systems, maybe? How close am I on the acronym? Yeah, that's close, Michael. It's the Texas Essential Knowledge and Skills. And so, you know, and a lot of the the TEKS, you know, there's been a lot of coverage of some of the poor decisions, the Texas. That's what I typically hear about them. State board is made about about them. But really, a lot of our standards are based off of disciplinary work, right? Like they have in a class, even in elementary, they'll say, okay, fourth grade, you're learning Texas history. And so what they do is they look chronologically at what Texas history, often a very traditional white-centered history, and they, they use that as their narrative. And they say, here, here, this is history to learn, which is, that's always interesting because that's already made a big decision that we're going to tie the way students learn about the world to a, to a discipline. You know, back in the day in social studies, there was a, a, t- a class that was taught across the United States in a lot of schools called Problems of Democracy. Oh, and we've really talked about the- this. Yeah, and it's really cool because it's a different way of thinking about curriculum because what the students and teachers did is, I mean, this was usually intended for seniors, but what they would, they would think of problems in the world, and then they would use all the disciplinary knowledge and all the things they could learn about it to get at that problem and think about what do we do about this, which is really the point of social studies, right? Citizenship, doing something, and hopefully making change for a more just world. Hopefully. That's interesting. It, it makes me think about the fact that as a teacher, you have all these competing ideas and like standard barriers that you have like, well, I'm in Massachusetts, so we have the mass frameworks that kind of guide what we teach, plus what my you know, department head and what my school has decided is important. And then I kind of have my own autonomy, but kind of based in my the frameworks of the fact that I have my school and then the state standards and I guess whatever national thing is going on too. Oh my goodness, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's, and we've talked about the national stuff, which the, the most influential national stuff in social studies is the C3 framework, right? Which is more about how, about how to teach than what to teach necessarily. It's, it does focus on actually skills, approaches, you know, inquiry, things like that. And so, yeah, what a challenge. And I know a lot of us want to do 
you know, critical work. And what we mean by that is, is justice oriented work. We want a more just world, right? We want fairness. We want all people to have a shot in society and to, for groups that have privilege to, you know, negate those kinds of privileges and make sure everyone has, you know, the ability to succeed. And we're still kind of working towards that in the United States without a question. We have a lot of problems we're still dealing with. Yeah. So how do you, can we do that in a social, is a social studies classroom a place to, for example, address climate change? So I know you just actually wrote an an article with our editor, Zach Seitz, about climate change in the, the social studies classroom. So I imagine we'll put a link to that in the show notes to see what teachers can do. Hopefully there's someone who can, you know, kind of help us talk more about critical pedagogy in the classroom. Do you have anyone in mind? Yep, we have oh, some right here. And hey, oh, there he is. We would like to just bumping right into us, right? We would like to welcome into the podcast, Kevin McGill. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be with you. We're thrilled to have you on, Kevin McGill. Hey, Kevin, do you mind telling us a little bit more about who you are? Who is this Kevin who we randomly bumped into on our podcast and your background in education? Yeah, it's so amazing that we ran into each other after that wonderful introduction. Yeah, my name is Kevin McGill. I am an assistant professor at Baylor University. And what my big research interests are, are how do teachers really understand power and the relationships that you guys were describing in their social studies classroom? And then what do they do with that information? How does that change their pedagogy? How does that change the decisions they make regarding curriculum and regarding their students? And how do they attend to the knowledge that students bring with them to the classroom. For some reason, I'm picturing, I don't know if you're familiar with the television program, He-Man, Masters of the Universe, but I imagine like once a teacher becomes, you know, realize that they have power of grade school, I have the power to transform my classroom. Yeah, I think that's actually a great metaphor. I think one of the things that social studies teachers often do is like, because of those structures that sort of keep education in place, sometimes keep what they're doing in place. They sometimes put these so artificial barriers on themselves, and sometimes they don't realize that they can sort of move beyond them. And that probably many people in the community are really supportive of those types of things that they might want to do. And so, yeah, becoming He-Man, you know, is an important thing. This, this, trans- this self-transformation to then make social transformation. Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it is interesting, too, because, I mean, the you know, I think I've heard people reference it as the echoes of schools, right? Like standards, even when you don't have a test in place and you don't have anyone saying, oh, you have to do this every day, you know, like actually checking up on you, you just feel like you have to kind of teach them, right? And especially young teachers feel that pressure. And power relationships are not usually built into the curriculum a lot, like confronting power relationships, right? There's this kind of idea. Everyone has a chance. The meritocracy myth is throughout social studies curriculum. And so addressing power is, is incredibly important because otherwise, you know, you kind of can grow up with the illusion that everyone does have kind of an equal chance in a society that often where chances are very unequal. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would say that I kind of went through that own becoming in my own teaching. I was a social studies teacher in Northern California and for NorCal. my first couple of years. NorCal, yeah, near, near the Bay Area. So I know Dan's in, in Southern California right now, but and I'm kind of jealous. I'm here in hot Texas. Oh, it's but okay. Yeah. There's earthquakes. Don't feel that jealous. <laughs> That's true. Oh, my goodness. Oh, everything's okay. Gosh. Um, We're okay. We're okay. Good deal. Good deal. 
so yeah, as a social studies teacher, I definitely ran up against that myself. I taught middle school sort of in a more traditional way at first, and, and I knew that there you know, could be something more. But I had mentors that sort of worked with me to, to overcome some of these, these things that I, I knew I wanted to do and, and couldn't always, didn't always necessarily feel like I could do. And then one of the most transformational experiences that I had was as a teacher was working in this opportunity and intervention program. And so my school made me the, the administrator and teacher of this program where the curriculum basically said, do what's in the best interests of your students. And I had a lot of students that were coming back from juvenile hall or that would come into class and say, hey, I was harassed by the police or, or I'm having these sorts of issues. And then so we built the class around these sorts of civic experiences that students were seeing and understanding and making sense of it. And so we'd bring in people like the local police and we'd talk through, hey, what are our rights uh, as citizens? Uh, we'd work with the local university uh, where students would work with sociologists, sociology students and filmmaking students and really document their experiences and talk about what are the social relationships that are establishing power and making these structures that they were seeing. You know, we worked with the NAACP and talked about, you know, what can citizens do to push back when uh, you know, these issues of power are uh, affecting certain people in, in inequitable ways. And so that really changed my life and my perspective on on what social studies teachers can do. And, and it really showed me that we can push past these these artificial barriers. And, and I really wanted to know more about that. And so that's really where we tried to go with this study was to examine teachers and what were sort of the artificial boundaries they might put on their instruction or what were the amazing transformative work that they were doing, you know, whether that be with curriculum, whether that be, you know, in the greater school community, or whether it be out in the community as activists. And so, yeah, Dr. Salinas and I were very interested in what those relationships were, how teachers understood them, and how that affected their teaching and pedagogy. When you were given the opportunity to teach in that program, was it realizing that you're kind of building the curriculum from the ground up? Was it freeing or frightening? I would say it's absolutely both. And I think one of the really big findings that comes out of this paper is this idea of intellectual solidarity. And I think in that context, I had it. I had it with Professor Rodriguez. I had it with the partners that sort of we made in the community. I had it with other teachers you know, on the campus who were working with our students. And so through that support, it became very freeing. But I think the initial thought of it was very frightening. And I think many of us as teachers think, oh, well, education could be different. And that's part of why we got into it is, you know, we can make these differences that either were like the experiences we had or that were not like the experiences we had. And I think I had both of those experiences. So I was excited, but I was also, yeah, absolutely frightened to, to do it. Sometimes a blank piece of paper just gives me the, the heebie-jeebies, you know? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. No, it definitely was. But I but I think the community was really what pushed us through and all, yeah. all, said, all those partners that we're really, you know, when they came in to see and understand and talk with the students, they, you know, really saw, oh, okay, we can develop something that's really neat and tailored to, to their interests, needs, things that they find interesting. That's great. That is great. I, you know, and I think the, the, the idea of being able to just pursue what you want is so foreign to what schools often look like. It can feel like a lot. And that's why I think the ideas and approaches we have about it are so important. You did bring up a story that reminded me of when I taught government. Um, I, I remember I 
for what somebody shared with me this ACLU video about your rights, particularly like as a citizen for Fourth Amendment rights that you had, like if you're pulled over in cars and stuff. I remember my first instinct was being like, am I allowed to show this? Can I show this in school? Because telling people their rights against police officers will be seen as anti-police officer. And I realized it was just that it was like the culture of the community that I was worried about, whether there would be negative reactions. So it's interesting how, again, it was, you just made me think of the power in my own classroom that others had. I ended up showing it, but... <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think really that that's, again, another one of the findings of the paper is, is what is our ideology? What is our understanding of other humans and what it means to be free? And so, yeah, we jump off in this paper looking at Hegel and his idea of the master-slave dialectic and how that sort of informs what goes on in classrooms. And I think as teachers, we often feel this this unfreedom, right? And so we have to clear that away in ourselves in order to sort of do that work with students and do that work with others in the community. So it's powerful that you decided to show it. Yeah, I oftentimes was doing things that I thought maybe would get me fired. <laughs> well, so before we go further, you've mentioned the paper a few times, and so let me formally introduce it and first congratulate you and Dr. Salinas on your publication. And so in the first issue of 2019, you two published an article called The Primacy of Relation, Social Studies Teachers and the Praxis of Critical Pedagogy. So you've talked a little bit about the paper. Let's dive all the way in now. <laughs> Sorry to jump the gun there. Yeah. But yeah, really the big idea of, of, of the this paper was we were really taking a look at the multifaceted nature of educational power and whether that be in curriculum, whether it be in the ways that teachers have relationships with students, what they're expected to do. And then so essentially it's what's the nature of power? How do teachers understand it and how do they negotiate it? And so again, the jumping off point was this idea of relation as was uh, referenced in the title. What are a teacher's understanding of the nature of being? What are their understandings of their the relationship to all the different aspects of that, that are involved in the classroom? And how do these matrices of social power affect their teaching? So I've read your abstract and I had to go to a thesaurus a few <laughs> times. I had to go to a dictionary. It is, it's very dense. You talk about their approach to living the world authentically by critical epistemology, ontology, and ideology. I thought that was really interesting. Do you mind just talking a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So really what we're looking at is power within the nature of knowledge. When you're talking about epistemology, power within ontology would be the ways that they understand being and relation. And so... I think that relates to, you know, Freire's work that talks about neutralizing power in classrooms and having agentic experiences. And then we talk a little bit about, in the paper, a critical ontological posture, a critical ontological social studies teaching posture. And that really refers to the approach a teacher takes towards others. And so wrapped up in all that are these issues of power related to gender or uh, sexuality or race and how those things sort of are internalized by a teacher and then how that sort of unfolds in the way that they end up teaching. Um, so yeah, I know it is very jargony. <laughs> <laughs> so I spend part of the first part of the paper sort of unraveling those ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I know when I've worked through, you know, those ideas, I mean, free air, you know, the first time I read it, I was like, what does all of this mean? And then I, the thing, the power is often in thinking about it for your classroom, right? Um, and so when I think of like, 
you know, critical epistemology, I think of like what knowledge is and what ways of knowing are honored in our schools. And again, I think it's the oftentimes these kind of hegemonic like ideas about who's important, right? Whose lives matter. And that's, that's something I often come back to when I look at like standards and, and we talked about this on a previous episode. And I like to use this as an example now. Um, when we talk about George Washington, he's in more, most standards, right? Like there's a variety of reasons why we're saying like his knowing about George Washington and his presidency and life are important, but then that we often exclude his acts as someone who enslaved many people and, and particularly own a judge, right? It makes me then think about like what type of knowledge, not just content knowledge do we think matters, but how do we think it matters, right? Because then it's like, what are we going to do with this? If we just teach about George Washington as is, it seems like it's a very status quo approach to the social studies. This is the system we have, and this is what everyone should obey and do. But then when we teach about, for example, Ona Judge's life and the way that she you know, escaped from George Washington, it shows that we're pushing back against kind of this you know, American myth that we've often been given about the early structures of democracy in the country. I don't know. Does that, does that kind of make sense about why it's hard to be agentic? Because we're given this whole, you know, wide-ranging curriculum that often kind of suffocates teachers and students from thinking about anything else or anything that matters. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we frame that in the paper as like the neoliberal agenda. Here are the things that students need to know to pass the test. Here are the things that they need to know to be what we call productive citizens within, as you say, the hegemonic society. But I think what was really powerful about these teachers is is actually Travis. We have three, I had three teachers, or we had three teachers, Travis, Caesar, and Rosa, who all sort of attend to these things in very different ways, but they all sort of considered themselves critical teachers. And I would say that Travis was all about doing that sort of work, right? Like talking about here's George Washington, here's why we have to know about him, but also here are the issues with this, here are the contexts in which this was happening, and all these things are foundational to our understanding of George Washington, but don't often come out in textbooks. And so he definitely aligned with the the type of critical teacher that uh, Dr. Salinas talks about with her critical historical inquiry. Here's the dominant narrative. We need to critique that narrative because there are other voices in history and we need to 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 support them coming out. I would say Caesar was a little bit different in that his critical pedagogy, he definitely aligned with Travis in those ways as well. But when he would see something at the school site that was sort of oppressive, he would attend to it. So he was a, a, a pre-service teacher, and when he was talking to his cooperating teacher, she was saying some things that were problematic. And so he would instantly stop the lesson and trouble those things and ask students what they thought about the lesson. He would also, so that he was talking, he was lecturing about democracy one day, and one of his students says, this isn't democratic. And so we stopped the lesson, and the class talked about how this could be more democratic. And so you know, he came up with, he was the executive, the principal would be uh, the Supreme Court, other classes would be states' rights, and then the class would be the Congress who were developing the laws. And so they ended up doing this whole experience where they transformed both the lesson, but also the power dynamic within the teaching. And then lastly, sort of Rosa attends to both of those things, but she also looks at the social world and she looks at the world as an activist. And so everything she did in the class was about helping students when they would have conversations that, oh, I don't. So she uh, she had a student who talked about, oh, I don't feel safe in these white spaces. They were talking about, they talked about a number of things, but in one case, 
civil rights. And so she first, she troubled the idea of the civil rights idea as sort of black culture is the civil rights narrative. So they talked about Latino civil rights issues. And then student, they had a conversation and students said, oh, I don't feel safe in white spaces. Why is that? I don't feel like I can go and vote. I don't feel like I'm part of this, this experience. And so they would then have conversations and lessons that were targeted at uh, going to protests or canvassing for particular candidates that would, they felt would make them feel better in, in those civic spaces and that they thought had their best interests in mind. And they were all sort of based in, again, what the students thought was needed in their communities. They said, oh, you know, we see buildings falling apart in our neighborhood. And so she did a lesson on, you know, the works programs with FDR. And they went into the community and they looked at social artifacts and they talked about what could happen if, as sort of we build these community structures and go out and build coalitions uh, and attend to those things as civic actors. So it was a really powerful experience in that sort of she all the teachers were very flexible in, in responding to what their students were talking about, but uh, she actually did the work of praxis out in the community, whereas the other sort of did it within the school community. And so that's really the distinction we make in the paper is all of these teachers are super powerful, critical teachers. But how can we, again, like you said earlier, push it past the sort of structures of the classroom and, and how are teachers doing this great work? Kevin, how did the teachers' backgrounds and positionalities influence their ability to kind of engage in this critical work with their students? And and for our audience, what I mean by positionalities is their positions in the world, right? Their their race, income, sexual orientation, those, those things that could factor how, whether they have power within the larger society or whether they're largely marginalized within it. That's a, a really great question. And all these teachers originally went through the same teacher education program. And each of these teachers chose these pseudonyms for particular reasons. But Travis identified as a white male. And he talked about, you know, traveling, traveling internationally on, you know, religious mission trips. And that that sort of inf- informed, oh, well, I saw these things and I feel like I need to attend to this. There's other ways of living, other ways of experiencing the world, other ways of understanding the world. Um, and so that's sort of where he came, f- came from. And he grew up in Arizona, in the Phoenix area. Caesar also was a white male, but the first thing he sort of pointed out was that I know the power and privilege that saying I'm a white male and that being a white male can give to me. And so he chose Caesar as a pseudonym because sort of he was uh, thinking about Cesar Chavez, I believe. And uh, he talked about his positionality going into these different spaces where he was sort of expected to be, in some ways, a colonizing force, as, as he put it. And so, you know, he was expected to have all the social capital or all of the privilege. And then these students he was serving through this organization he talked about, which will rem- remain nameless, right? You know, he talked about they were going in and saying they're doing all this great work with students, but really they're just dumping these teachers into these particular environments. And really it's recreating the sort of power that already exists uh, in society and no one's really troubling that. And so sort of he deeply internalized that and came back to graduate school to learn more about why this was happening and how it was happening in education. And then Rosa identified as a Chicana And by Chicana, she meant that she was an activist, a Latina activist who felt the teachers should be activists in that way. She grew up in South Texas uh, in a border town and talked about her borderland identity to, quote, Anseldua. 
you know, she felt like she was both part of that community, but she had this dual person, this dual identity where she didn't feel totally comfortable in Mexico, totally comfortable in the United States. But these relationships uh, sort of informed who she was as a teacher. And so I think your point is so, or your question is so important because all of their identities uh, had a huge role in who they ended up being as teachers and how they ended up internalizing critical study. So what advice do you have for teachers who want to take a more critical approach to their classroom? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first, it's helpful to sort of trouble the assumptions we're, we're making in schooling. I think all teachers are sort of in this process of critically becoming. And so seek out like-minded teachers who are going to support the type of work you'd like to do in classrooms. Learn about knowledge that's going to nuance, you know, what's in the traditional canon. So teachers have to have this content knowledge, this critical conscious and this pedagogical content knowledge in which they're sort of using all of those things concurrently to to attend to power. So I think ultimately try and develop this intellectual solidarity with other teachers first and then also with your students and have dialogical conversations where you're talking about the nature of power and that they're sharing experiences, that you're building safe communities where they feel like they can tell you about their lives and their experiences and then and you can actually work to attend to those and then in ways that align with the type of work you need to do as a social studies teacher. Take a critical ontological posture in that be aware or and be aware of the power relationships that are affecting you, whether that's, you know, the curriculum, whether you have a principal who's doing, you know, who's coming down on you in this way. Have conversations with your principal and say, hey, here's the work we're trying to do and here's why it's helpful to students. And what what we really found in this paper was that when teachers did that kind of work, they were really able to move beyond the classroom. And in many ways, it was the teachers limiting themselves. It wasn't necessarily these other instances of power that they were perceiving to limit them, but rather when they sort of overcame that fear that Dan talked about earlier, they were really able to do this work. And that really no one was stopping them or, or telling them they shouldn't be doing this. They were saying, well, maybe it was it's strange or different, but really we we understand that it's good work. And and I think the coalitions they were building allowed them to, to do that type of work. I think for me, it's been really important as, you know, a white cisgender, you know, male that I both have critical friends I can talk to and work about on this. And I, I was lucky to have teach with critical friends who I think we were really able to say, like, should I do this? And, and got a lot of encouragement about doing, you know, curriculum and lessons and things that were valuable. But then also listening to critical scholars and particularly critical scholars of color who are who have been doing the work, because I know our worldview, you know, shapes so much of what we see in our lives. And I know I've by listening to scholars of color, I've learned so much that could have easily been off my radar. And so it's it's, you know, such important work. But but that idea of community is is it's so hard to do it alone. And I think that's a lot of things about teaching is that we need other people on the ride, on the journey with us. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Get a team. (laughs) (laughs) Go team. And I think, yeah, the idea of, I mean, uh, similarly, I had a similar sort of critical becoming. I I, I was fortunate enough to have a, I I don't know if I mentioned this, a, a high school teacher named Arturo Rodriguez, who sort of, he encouraged me to, to, to read about critical work. He was my high school teacher and then he ended up being on my dissertation committee. He's a professor oh, wow. now. And so going on this journey with others or with him, I should say, uh, and then finding people along the way, Dr. Salinas, who are like-minded advocates and, and people who 
can share a different worldview with you is so powerful. Absolutely. Well, Kevin McGill, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Michael, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So, Kevin, where can our listeners find you and your work online? My most recent publications, I, as you pointed out, are in TRSC. Nice. I just published a piece in JSSR. Yeah, Journal of Social Studies Research, right? Journal of Social Studies Research. Um, I've got another piece that's about to come up in Teachers College Record about critical dialogue and how that shapes the nature of some of these more activist conversations. Uh, and then, yeah, working with Dr. Uh, Brooke Blevins on that. And then with Dr. Tony Talbert, we're publishing a book, Taking Sides, U.S. History, and we're definitely inserting a few more uh, critical elements into that and social studies elements in addition to what had been a, a pretty hardcore history text before. So That's great. Our projects, yeah. yeah. That sounds like great work, and we will link to many of these in our show notes, and you're welcome to email us from future publications, and we'll add them to our show notes so people can kind of keep up with some of you and, and Dr. Salinas's work. And so again, thank you so much for joining us today, and we definitely hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Thank you both so much. It was a pleasure. And it was a pleasure for us to have you. Now at the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning, doing the work, and, you know, just getting together. If you're doing something fun and creative in education, or you just want to chat, tweet us at Visions of Ed. We're also on Facebook and sometimes somewhere else. And if you haven't already... And really, come on, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere else you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off. <laughs>